It is a privilege indeed to come together tonight to have this opportunity to assemble with those of like precious faith as referenced by Peter in 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. Perhaps we might remember the words of the psalmist in Psalm 89 when he said, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. As we've gathered this afternoon in reverence, in appreciation for what God has done for us, let me take a moment and express the appreciation my family and I have for the men such as Jeff and Harold who so ably and capably can stand, teach a class, preach the lessons. It's truly a blessing indeed. I know we've more than once made comment, our elders as well as others, about how blessed this congregation is. Perhaps that's an understatement. If you've had the opportunity of being a part of other congregations, that's not nearly always the case, but here it is, and that's certainly a wonderful thing. My family and I appreciate the elders allowing us, when invited, to be guest speakers or guest individuals at other places, but it's always good to come back home. Let it be noted we are not interested in searching out, seeking out, trying other places. We are very blessed to be here. We want you to know that. And with that said tonight, what is it that makes you clean? What is it that makes you clean? We're each well aware of the fact, perhaps, that the scriptures often use the word clean, speaking of it in a variety of ways and with, in fact, a number of meanings. This evening, of course, as Lucas read a moment ago, we will cast the spotlight on John 15. But leading up to that, there's a number of other thoughts that should be utilized within our mind. With that said, let's introduce the lesson with some of these considerations. You and I appreciate well the concept of cleanliness. How often did your mother perhaps encourage you, son or daughter, wash before you come to the table? It's important in her mind to have clean hands when you would come and partake of a meal, wasn't it? How many of us may well remember being sent first to wash and then having to come back to the table? Or what about that new car that quite often that salesperson is so excitedly willing to show us and one of the things undoubtedly that is made, that car is as shiny as possible to draw our attention to make it such that we will give a second look to it. Quite likely if that car was rather dirty it wouldn't be nearly as appealing. Cleanliness is important, isn't it? In addition to those things, what about our drinking water? Brother Roger works, at least in part, to provide water. And isn't it true that our cities provide purified, uncontaminated water? It's tested regularly to ensure that it passes the respective standards for health. And if it doesn't, warnings are sent out to customers such that they can boil it or make other preparations. We see the idea of cleanliness. Quite often we demand it. It is not an option. One last one I mentioned, what about metallic purposes? You and I are aware that gold or silver or, say, platinum or other precious metals, the degree of purity determines, by and large, its worth, doesn't it? With those ideas stated, notice with me, if you would, how often the Bible addresses cleanness. You'll note with me that some 138 times in the King James Version of the Bible, the word clean occurs, or some derivative of it. 138 times Old and New Testament alike. I've listed just a few of the passages for your consideration. Immediately, many thoughts will come to mind as you merely look and see them. 
In Genesis chapter 6 and 7, in the ages long past, as God had made known to Noah that the flood was soon to come, he gave instruction that aboard that ark, Noah, in addition to his family, was to take two different kinds of animals, clean and unclean we can immediately note that the word clean there didn't mean that Noah had to give the animals a bath. That was not the usage of the word clean in that context, was it? It had to do with a ceremonial cleanness, a fact to which we shall refer again in just a moment. But as another example, in Leviticus chapters 13 and 14, there the discussion had to do with a particular disease that could well inflict a person, at least in the days long past, and it's true that on occasion men still can be afflicted with it today. It's leprosy. Isn't it amazing? Two whole chapters of the Word of God were invested so that the priest could diagnose properly and ascertain when a person could be proclaimed clean from leprosy. Clean. Now there, the word had a meaning that related to ceremonial cleanness, but a little bit more. Physical cleanness, having been freed from the bonds of that terrible malady known as leprosy. Consider another. As we consider also 2 Kings 5 verse 10, a scene so well often considered by us and replayed very often in her mind, a man named Naaman. He was afflicted with leprosy, was he not? And amazingly enough, a young maiden girl informed him that in the land of Israel there was a prophet who could cleanse him of that. Upon learning of that information, he proceeded to develop contact with the king of Israel. And furthermore, he determined and decided that he would go there. And when he did, Elisha did not respond the way he expected. In fact, Elisha said, Go and dip seven times in the Jordan River, and thou shalt be clean. Notice again, Elisha used that word, cleansed from leprosy. In the New Testament, a leper in Matthew 8 came to Jesus and said, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. We get the idea. Many, many times the word's employed, but even that isn't all. Notice the word cleanse. In many ways, the verb form of it, it itself occurs some 85 times, and again with a variety of meanings and shades of consideration. The first I've listed for your study, Leviticus 16.30. The Day of Atonement. What a fantastic and marvelously important day in the life of ancient Israel when the individuals, the nation of Israel, would undergo that set of activities. The high priest would enter the most holy place, and as a part of the ceremony... There was a cleansing of not only the house of Israel, but the furnishing elements of the tabernacle. The verb cleanse is employed. On another occasion in Psalm 51, verse 2, King David poured out his heart to the God of heaven. Why? What had happened? David, prior to that time, had engaged in adultery with Bathsheba, and furthermore, he had a hand in committing murder as he aided to put Uriah to death. After Nathan straightforwardly said, David, you are the man. Confronting him with the sin in his life, David opened his heart and poured it out to God and said, Wash me from my transgressions and cleanse me from my iniquities. The idea time and again is that clean, cleanse is something that's vitally important not only to man, but also to God. 
one last consideration. In fact, a verse in which both words occur together. Ezekiel 36, 25. In the heart of that major prophet of the Old Testament, God through Ezekiel straightforwardly affirmed that it was essential to be clean and that only he, by the means of his own revelation, could provide the cleansing agent. I've made note of those thoughts to challenge you to think with them of me so that we can move to the next consideration and look again at the issue in the New Testament case. As you consider these with me, please notice the following. These words clean and cleanse are such that you've already noted with me a variety of the meanings that they might possess. It's important for us, as we note the text in John 15, to consider especially what it was that Jesus was describing. When he said, Now you're clean through the words that I have spoken unto you, what was he saying? To lead you into that consideration, consider these usages of the word clean and cleanse. We've hinted at some of these, but let's be a bit more specific so that our understanding will be a bit heightened. First, ceremonial cleanness. In Numbers chapter 6, verse 6, we appreciate the fact that it was possible for an individual to be rendered unclean if he came in contact with a corpse, a dead body. If he were to touch that or have to touch that in some way, God decreed he would be ceremonially unclean and must undergo a cleansing procedure in order to reinstate the cleanliness that he would need to enjoy. Clearly, again, that does not mean that his physical body was dirty. It meant that he had engaged in an activity whereby he had compromised the right standing of cleanliness before God. It was necessary to reinstate it by a God-given procedure. We might remember that the Old Testament was filled with passages that referred to ceremonial uncleanness. Men could become ceremonially unclean. Women could become ceremonially unclean. And as a result of that, they would be forbidden by God to engage in certain activities until the state of uncleanness was removed. That's a sobering reflection, isn't it? We'll need to revisit that somewhat briefly as we close our lesson a little bit later. But notice physical uncleanness. This one you and I are very familiar with. We mentioned earlier how our parents may have encouraged us to take a bath. There, our physical body was dirty. It was in need of being cleansed. Job makes reference to that in Job chapter 9, verse 30, where he noted that even if snow water were used to wash his hands, he made reference then to a necessity, there an occasion of physical cleanness. We're beginning to wonder then, which type of word was Jesus using in John 15? But we aren't quite finished. What about Psalm 24.4? This is one of the most penetrating texts of the early part of the book of Psalms. Here, a set of questions is asked. Note the way those are, in fact, worded. Psalm 24, beginning in verse 3. Two questions are asked. Lord, who shall ascend into thy holy hill? To put that in language that would be very familiar to you and me, God, who stands pleasingly in your sight? God, who is able to be justified? Who is able to meet your approval? Verse 4 gives the answer. Those that have clean hands and a pure heart. 
Now it didn't mean hands had been washed with soap. The psalmist went much deeper than that. For as the verses proceed to explain, that clean hands was a figurative way of expressing a type of lifestyle, a conversation, a manner of life that met the approval of God, that was right in His sight, that was righteous by His decree. Cleanness was very important. Did you note with me there? If one does not have clean hands, spiritually, figuratively, he cannot please God. He has no hope of going to heaven. That alone makes this subject of cleanness exceedingly important, doesn't it? One last one I mentioned in John 13, 11. This was another scene exceedingly familiar to us. You're familiar with there. Our Savior took a basin of water and proceeded to wash the feet of the apostles. But along the way, he made comment in verses 10 and 11. He said, not all of you are clean. The text helps us appreciate that was referring to Judas. Judas was not morally pure because he had already made arrangements to betray his master for 30 pieces of silver. Isn't it an amazing thought that our Savior, able there to know the mind, the thoughts, the heart of Judas, described him as unclean? Having said all of that, would you note with me then that cleanness is exceedingly vital? Why was Israel commanded to be clean? Why was it so important? The books of Leviticus and Numbers especially identifying it. Here's the reason, if we had to state it in one sentence. Israel had to be clean because the God whom she served and proclaimed was clean. That was the only reason. Today, is it any different for you and me as Christians? Why are you and I commanded to be clean? Why are we asserted and demanded that we in the New Testament era be spiritually clean in the sight of God? It is for the same reason. Because the God whom we serve and worship is holy. Be ye holy as I am holy. 1 Peter 1.16 That same reason was the one given in Leviticus 19.2 as the case of the Old Testament. To note these comments is to hasten us to consider the next set of ideas. This is the surrounding text of John 15. If you have your Bibles open, turn there with me as we look in some detail at some of the things relayed to us in the 15th chapter of the Gospel according to John. The day was Thursday. It was the day prior to our Lord's crucifixion. He would be nailed to a cross at about 9 o'clock on Friday morning. The events of the scene here of John the 15th chapter then took place in the late evening hours of the previous day. In other words, he was roughly 12 hours from the cross and no more. Don't you know that the thoughts of his mind weighed heavily as he well knew what would happen tomorrow. He well appreciated the pain, the agony, the suffering, the difficulties that would be his, but he also knew the glory for man as sin was provided a means of its cleansing. It was Thursday. In addition to that given idea, Jesus had interacted significantly with the apostles and disciples. He had noted to them back in John 13, as I mentioned earlier, he had taken a basin, and even though he was their master and Lord, he had humbled himself to wash their feet. The lesson for them, they too were to humble themselves not only before God, but before one another as they proclaimed the truth of the gospel. But in John 14, what lesson did he convey as that chapter began? 
He knew their hearts were laden with heaviness and fear. He understood that they perceived things were not looking terribly bright. And he said, let not your heart be troubled. You see, their hearts was in a situation of fearfulness. Their hearts and their mindset, their feelings were in a position of great turmoil. He asserted, let not your heart be troubled. Why, Lord? I have gone to prepare a place for you. Where he said, I go to prepare a place for you. The promise that he gave to them was this. If I go and prepare it, I'm going to come back and get you. I'll come back and receive you that where I am there, you may be as well. In the days that were ahead, especially after they watched what happened the next morning at 9 o'clock, how often must they have reflected on that text with greatness of confidence and assurance and used that as a foundation stone for their life? Paul did. Peter did. Andrew, the others did. But notice something else that's given to us in the 16th chapter. If we appreciate what occurs on each side of this text in John 15, we notice there's reference time and again to the Comforter. Their hearts were sufficiently heavy that they were in need of that source of the comfort in the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, if I go, I'll send him to you. Our Savior did leave. He ascended back to the Father and amazingly, per His promise, He sent the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, upon them. I say all that to say this. Jesus spoke many comforting words on the evening prior to His crucifixion. And as He spoke those words, a portion of it is the very text that is the lesson text for tonight. Would you begin reading with me in John 15 verse 1? I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit he taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, and ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered. And men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. If we pause after the reading of that verse we might notice that some comments well to be made. Verse 1, Jesus, in one of those famous statements as recorded in the book of John, uses the phrase, I am. Throughout this book, he had already stated many things, such as, I am the bread of life, John 6.35. Such as, I am the living water, in John 4.14. Here's another one. I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Especially in this area, this part of the world, we understand well the significance of the vine and the branches. Consider a grapevine or some other vine, perhaps watermelon. We un understand the fact that as long as there is contact and continuation of that vine onto the branches, then that watermelon or other fruit can flourish and grow and multiply. But if you sever the contact, 
we know that not only will the fruit soon wither and die, but there will be no more produced on that particular end. It'll have to start all over, if you will, y'all. Significance? Jesus said, I'm the vine. My father's a husbandman. Unless you abide in me, no possibility of fruitfulness. No possibility of wholeness and continuation. You must abide in me, he said. There's great significance in that observation. Noting especially verse 2, Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. On the other hand, every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. One of the things that we can appreciate is this, namely, the necessity of bearing fruit for the Lord. For he clearly said, those who do not bear fruit, they're taken away. A question then, are you and I bearing fruit for the Lord? Is it such that we can directly and with confidence make statements that we are daily, constantly bearing fruit for Jesus? The reason that becomes significant is in the very text of verse 3. I have listed it for your consideration most carefully. It is that text of the lesson this evening. Ye are clean through the word which I have spoken to you. To show you or to add an emphasis to it, I've also listed the American Standard rendering. Already you're clean because of the word which I have spoken unto you. I would ask you to note with me a few thoughts based on that text. Jesus expressly made this statement to those disciples, You are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Without question, we know that the Savior never lied, He never deceived, and thus if He expressly noted that those apostles, those disciples were clean, they must have been so. And it's also easy to see that He was not referring to physical cleanliness. You are clean, He said, because of the word that I have spoken to you. The Savior's thrust had to do with their cleansing from sin. They were morally pure for one thing, but what's more, they were spiritually right with God at that moment. He made statement that they were clean because of the word that he'd spoken to them and of them. That's all the more significant when he thus affirmed that that alone must be understood in the following context. You must continue to bear fruit. You must continue to remain in contact in the vine, if you will, because if not then you will find yourself needing to be cut off. In fact, it's even worse than purging, isn't it? For those that are bearing fruit are purged, that they may bear more fruit. Those that bear no fruit, he says, are taken away. These apostles would undergo many things in the hours and days that were ahead of them. They needed a faith that would not be easily shaken. To them, he said, Clean now, but in the verses that follow, you must continue your consideration of faithfulness, devotion, and loyalty. Consider some other comments, if you would, about that. I've listed these at the bottom as applications for all of us today. Isn't it easy to make application of the same idea and thought? You and I can appreciate, to some extent, the very thoughts of these apostles. To those within the sound of my voice who are Christians, do you remember what it was like the day you were baptized? The moment you came forth from that watery grave of baptism, do you remember how you felt? 
Do you remember the burden of sin having been lifted from your shoulders never again to be couched over you? God forgave those sins when you were scripturally baptized. They were never more to be remembered by Him. Isn't that wonderful? But now, were you guaranteed to the point of own to eternal salvation at that moment if you had not remained faithful? Well, of course not. We understand the need for continual faithfulness. And hence, though you and I may have been clean at that time we obeyed the gospel, we must continue in that state of cleanness, ceremonially as well as spiritually right with God. Again, we cannot overestimate the importance of that idea. Notice also another concept I've listed. These scriptures will help us appreciate. As we begin in John 5, verse 39, Jesus made reference there to the fact that you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. You and I can know for certain that as we search the scriptures, these scriptures contain everything necessary. How did Peter say that? All things that pertain unto life, and godliness. That's found in 2 Peter 1 verse 3. According as His divine power hath given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. We can know that for certain. How are we made clean? It's not by accident. It is not by the words of men. It's not by buying any special detergent at the nearest discount store. Spiritual cleanness doesn't come by accident. It comes by first knowing that which we need to follow. A knowledge is involved. In addition to that, consider the text of Acts 17, 11. Here, as the Apostle Paul made comment, as he found himself in the city of Thessalonica and then on to Berea, the following grand commendation is made. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily whether those things were so. No doubt we've often read that text, made usage of it, but notice the last phrase. Search the Scriptures daily. Why? Whether these things were so. Do you suppose the brethren in Berea understood that cleanness just didn't come from the words of a man? Sounds that way, doesn't it? They understood well that spiritual cleanness only comes from a thus saith the Lord, only from a proclamation of God toward that end. And that alone leads us to appreciate today the complete error of those teachers who would say anything other than what God has said. Would it not be a fearful thing to stand before the august presence of the God of heaven in judgment and give an account for teaching and preaching others in ways that were not contained in this book? No wonder James 3.1 says, Be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. It is a sobering reflection how important cleanness is. How would you and I look upon a parent that would purposefully tell their children something that supposedly would make them clean all the while knowing it would harm them? What would we think of a parent who urged their child to take a bath in some kind of acid that would eat their skin? That parent is obviously seriously ill and mistaken to give any child that kind of advice. You and I, if we hope to give anybody advice on becoming spiritually clean, we must be people of the book. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, Hosea 4.6. 
We must be thorough students of the grand book of God, willing to give book, chapter, and verse to those who ask us questions on the things that God has stated. But not only must we know it, what about the application thereof? Isn't it also true we must, in fact, apply it in our own life and aid others by kindness and also by directness when needed to do the same? I've shared some passages for your consideration. One is in the very verse of Acts 17, verse 18. Notice in that text, we read about the power and the character of the application of God's Word. After they believed, they did something with it. Isn't it true today that you and I can become sons of God when we believe? John 1, verses 12 and following. Just because we mentally give assent to the power and truth of the Bible, it doesn't mean that we are children of God. We must use that belief to emanate in our heart and complete the plan of salvation and then do works ready, meet for repentance, if you will, and continue day by day clean in the sight of God. How well did Paul make the point in Galatians 5, 6 that that which benefits that which is good, if you will, in the sight of God is faith which worketh by love. Is my faith then one that works by love and thus leads to cleanness for me in the sight of God? And what about you? These thoughts are indeed exceedingly pertinent. Notice as we make the personal application, continuing it, if you will, to be clean. I began the text, the lesson tonight, by asking, isn't it interesting how often we demand cleanness in our life? You and I will not accept water if it's not sufficiently clean. In fact, there are many who will go and purchase water simply because they do not trust the cleanness or for other reasons otherwise. We demand cleanness of our water. We demand cleanness in many other aspects of our life, say the gold or silver that we may well purchase. How many of us demand the same level of purity and cleanness in our spiritual life? Are we far more willing to accept spiritual dirtiness? Or do we demand that high, high level of spiritual cleanness? The question is ours, isn't it? Jesus said, now you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. It would be certainly appropriate to this point to note that the same because of that applied to the apostles in a very obvious way applies to us. How is Randy maintaining cleanness before God? Or substitute your name there. It's because of the Word. None of us have any hope of standing clean before God without it. Do we remember the text of 1 Corinthians 2 verses 9 through 14? When there the Apostle Paul made the statement that I hath not seen nor ear hath heard what God has in store for those that are His. That promise, that statement is not merely referring to an eternity in heaven. Though that's a marvelous and wonderful thing. We know that because in the next two verses Paul said, For He has revealed them to us by His Holy Spirit. Oh indeed, I haven't been able to to behold nor ear to perceive the goodness that we have to aid us in being clean. Satan cannot force us to become dirty. If we do, it's our choice. There is no temptation taking you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but also with temptation will provide a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. 
verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 10. You see, the choice then if we fall, if we succumb to temptation, if we allow ourselves to become spiritually unclean, we have made that decision. Thankfully, the blood of Christ is there at our disposal, ready for us to take advantage of it and avail, and avail ourselves of its power and cleanse that sin from our life. If you've never become a Christian this evening, the waters of baptism is the only place anywhere in the New Testament where the blood of Christ can be contacted. Nowhere else. It's not contacted in belief. It's not contacted in repentance, nor even in confession. But in Romans 6, as well as Colossians 2, as well as Galatians 3, we're told we're contacted in baptism. Have you been baptized? Have you had your sins washed away and thus become spiritually clean? If you've become a Christian, if you've known the goodness and glory that it is to walk with Christ, but for whatever reason you've allowed yourself to become unclean in God's sight, come back to that state of cleanness the Lord wants you to, God wants you to, the Holy Spirit desires you to. And there's many, many people almost certain who've prayed on your behalf many, many times. If we could be of any assistance to you this, this afternoon, this evening, again, I pose you the question, what makes you clean? We now know the answer is the Word of God. Have you applied it? Have you obeyed it? Do you live in harmony with it? If you don't, then we're going to stand in just a moment and sing a hymn that Brother Terry has, has announced. As we do that, there will be an opportunity for each of us to make response to the invitation of God. That invitation is open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Indeed, if you have questions or issues that you'd like to discuss, feel free to call one of the elders or myself any time of the day or night. But this is a convenient time, an opportune one at that. If we could be of assistance to you in your initial obedience as an alien sinner or as one that needs to rededicate your life, don't hesitate any longer. Become clean. Remain in that state and enjoy the goodness and blessing that God has to offer you. If we can help you respond today publicly, let that be known while together we stand and while we sing.